It's the first Monday of the month, and we're responding to questions from you. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 407. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Once a month, we open up the show to respond to questions that have come in from you, our listeners, over the last month or so. If you have a question you'd like us to consider for a future Q&A episode, you can go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. I'm here with Bonnie Stahoviak, as I am most months. Hello, Bonnie. You're not only with me most months, you're, you're with me most days. <laughs> Well, really, almost every day. Yeah, almost. <laughs> except, except when you're traveling when, yeah. on the road speaking, which yeah. uh, has happened more and more these days. So, well, uh, we got a lot of questions as we always do. I'm so excited to always dive in these questions. I know we've got lots of thoughts on this. So let's just jump in with our first question from Brad here. Brad wrote in and said, I have a team member that's just getting ran over and used by her boss, as in not being compensated at all for what she's doing. She has a difficult time saying no and asking for the things she needs to be able to keep the main thing, the main thing, and prioritize. What podcast in your current arsenal would be helpful for her to listen to? Brad, whatever Bonnie says next is what you should listen to. Bonnie, what thoughts do you have on this? I have mentioned this book. I'm going to mention a book instead of a podcast, but I've mentioned this book many times and I keep coming back to it and think it would be a wonderful read for this person. And it's called The Empowered Manager by Peter Block. And I I can't even, I'm not exaggerating to say that it completely transformed my career. And what it invites us to do is to stop thinking about our role in workplaces as one of dependence and instead to think of those relationships as interdependent. I will also admit, and this is kind of a hard story for me to share in a concise way, but I was once laid off after 11 years at the same company, and I can remember going for a walk with my parents. And my dad, who had also experienced some time being out of work after he lost his company, which had been in our family for four generations, and I can remember, I'm, I'm teary-eyed, and we're, we're walking about, and he says, Bonnie, there's one thing I can tell you. This is never going to happen to you again. I'm not saying that you aren't going to ever be laid off again. What I'm saying is this right now that you're experiencing is never going to happen to you again. And my dad could not have been more right. And what this both in terms of the book and also in terms of that very traumatic experience, I'll I'll be candid about that has really transformed it. And I no longer think of it. And the phrases that you used as, not being compensated for all she's doing, getting ran over, used by her manager. Those are the kinds of phrases that sound off the alarm bells for me that this is a dependent relationship. And I'll tell you, I really enjoy the both the freeing feeling that it has that I make significant contributions to my work and I am compensated for my work, but it is not a one-way street. It's an interdependent relationship. And I really like that. In terms of negotiations, it can be really difficult 
This often comes up in gender, although any of us can have difficulty negotiating. But one thing that comes up in the research around women and negotiating is that it helps to think about negotiating on behalf of someone else. I find that really helpful for me to think about when I'm negotiating that I'm doing it on behalf of my family. We have kids who have their expenses and David and I have our expenses. We are a family. We're a team. And I don't just think about it as myself being compensated. I think about it as negotiating for our family. One of the things that that might look like in terms of speaking fees that I charge, you know, th- those those are hard for me to do. By the way, now Dave does them. So <laughs> I no longer have to do that kind of negotiation. But that's the kind of thing of like, well, the time that will I'll be away from the family, like the, the things that are harder to to contemplate, it's helpful to think about that in terms of our team as a family. And that's who I'm negotiating or Dave is negotiating on behalf of. One of the things that individuals who are in situations like you described here is that it becomes like this no theme. No, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. Or the yes, but theme. Yes, I can do this, but I would encourage anyone who's struggling this to get used to the phrase yes, and yes, I definitely could take a look at that. And in in order to help with that, I, I would need just some help looking at the other priorities and to always have a list of projects and the desired outcomes that are associated with those projects on hand. I will say that the person I report to currently, I never have these issues with. If I did, though, I mean, literally never, by the way. (laughs) If I ever did, though, I have my list of projects right there with the desired outcomes such that if he was trying to get me to pull me in another direction and trying to sort of... not not compensate me for my work and you know pull me off of the things I would have that at the ready so we could have a real discussion about whatever it is he's asking me to look at how that fits in with these projects and their desired outcomes the desired outcomes you you keep hearing me say that because it's so essential instead of just being doers in our roles we're able to do things that produce certain results and that increases our value in organizations and that helps us be better compensated for our work. So one other resource I would recommend, sadly, it's another book, but we can handle this. That is a book by Greg McEwen about essentialism. And his whole thing is that we need to just reduce the things that we're focused on. We need to get better at saying no and then we need to really just focus, 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 and and get the multiplier effect that it comes from doing that. I will say, I mean, I really enjoyed the book. It's a pretty fast read. I found it helpful. I will also say that in, just in my style and my taste, I find that he oversimplifies some things. I'm kind of like, yeah, we can't all do this. So, I mean, it depends. I think it's healthy for some people to read, but I also think it's healthy to recognize he's in a different context that some of us find ourselves in. And we don't always have quite that much autonomy to say no with the radical degree that he prescribes it. But that would be another thing I'd suggest. It's a really hard situation to be in. And I I wish this person the best of luck on pursuing this. Brad, I know it's also really hard when you care about someone else and you see them in this situation and you want so much for them not to be taken advantage of. And it's hard to know how to support them. And I hear that in your question too. And my invitation to you would be to take that step that Bonnie just suggested, that yes and, and to help her to take an initial step. Not that she's likely going to change the entire dynamic right away, 
but what's one initial step where you could perhaps help her if she's open to some input from you and some coaching to do a yes and? Yes, I'm willing to do this and here's what I would ask or here's the timeline that I'd like to see happen as far as us making potentially a compensation change. If you can help her to begin to take that first step in a in something small, that will help her to develop some of that confidence to then take that step in the next situation and the next one and the next one after that and potentially change that dynamic long term. So good luck. Let us know what you use and how it goes. This next question is from Mark. Mark writes, I recently made the leap into managing a 10-ish size team of financial analysts. This wouldn't be a big deal, except I've previously worked as an employee on what people call an A-team of super passionate, productive, and skilled coworkers. This team is not that team. (laughs) Do you have any tips on how to start turning a team that just sees themselves as producers into something special? How do you get over the complexity when the team's job really is to just produce the same thing over and over accurately? Mark, thanks so much for this question. I'm thinking about what you've asked here in the context of something David Marquet said a couple of weeks ago on a previous episode. He talked about trying to change the culture of the crew on the submarine he was commanding to really be a high-performing team over time. And he mentioned two things that both go together that I think were really, really critical points on leading through change. One of the things he said is that people need to be technically proficient. They need to know what they're doing. They need to be highly trained and skilled. And you need to do all the things that we do in organizations in order to help people to have that level of skill. He also made the point that without the larger why, that that's not enough. And and by the way, the same thing too is you can't just have the larger why you're doing something and not have the technical skill to go along with it. The two in combination, though, can be really, really powerful. What I hear in your question is that you have a team of people that are competent at what they're doing, but there's not the passion, there's not the drive, there's not the desire to really go above and beyond, and especially because it sounds like the work's fairly repetitive. My invitation to you would be is, what's the why? Like Simon Sinek asked, start with why. And what's the bigger purpose for what you're doing and why you're doing it? What is it that your team helps customers do better, more effectively, whether those customers are internal or external? What's the bigger, nobler motive behind what you're doing? One of the things that I thought of when looking at your question was just how this worked for me and sometimes didn't work in my work at Dale Carnegie over the years. A lot of my work was very repetitive in nature in that we would often be doing similar programs for similar clients, sometimes the same clients, many times over the years with different participants. But it would be very repetitive. And one of the things that I love that at least one of my managers did at the time that was just brilliant is even though the programs were repetitive is we would get together for staff meetings. And the first third of a staff meeting was going around and telling stories about client successes that happened in our programs, in our classrooms, one-on-one in our coaching. And we'd share those stories. And the reason for doing that was not to find testimonials and not to make more connections, although sometimes that did happen. But really, the driving reason was to 
keep front and center the why behind what we were doing. And for me, that was huge. That was huge of being able to see those connections. And you uh, you have the ability and perhaps, perhaps even the call as the leader of the team to call people to do that, to spend time listening to what the why should be and to engage in that why and to set that bar pretty high. It's not likely people will go beyond the bar you set, but if you set the bar high, you give people the invitation to do more of that. And I think that's just as important as the strategy, as the reporting, as the metrics, perhaps even more so if you can identify what that why is and start to bring that into your regular interactions with the team, you encourage people to reach that nobler motive for why you're doing the work that you're doing. Another resource that would be really helpful to you on this is episode 349. John Pinheiro was on the show. He's one of our listeners out in Florida. He talked about taking over a new team and all of the logistics that went along with that, but he also talked about the why. What's the why behind what we're doing? And he walked through how he went through that process of, of framing that for his team. And I had a dinner with him a couple months ago when I was in Florida. And the success he's had over the last uh, year or two of building this team and, and making the long-term investment around the big whys and the percentage growth they've had is just incredible. So uh, he continues to just impress me in so many ways. So episode 349 is a wonderful resource for that, uh, Mark. If if you start there, I think that will give you a starting point for creating that why for this team as well. Our next question is from Ashish. Ashish wrote in and said, as you know, when interviewing for a new position, the interviewers are also putting their best foot forward. What are some of the traits a candidate can look for to make sure that they are making the right choice, not only from an organization perspective, but also from the team and their immediate management perspective as well? Bonnie? Thanks for the question. This is really an important one. And it's one I find so many people, at least not overtly, looking like they're trying to do at all when I'm on the other side of the fence. And I wonder, you know, don't you kind of want to know what you're getting yourself into? But so many times people miss this step. The challenge here is it, it happens around when you think about organizational culture. There's so much of organizational culture that we can't see. And there's also this difference between what are the espoused values and then how those values actually play out within an organization. So these are really important things to be watching for. I try to look for every clue that I can. I watch for what is being said, but also what is not being said. I watch for how people are treated. What are the interactions like between some of the people who are lower on the organizational chart and some of the more senior leaders? And I watch for that interplay. That can be really a good perspective on whether or not all people are valued in the organization, or is it more of a big power distance, which I myself don't find a comfortable place to work. I, I like when there's a smaller power distance between people. And I just know that's important to me with my values. When I have a chance to talk to people, whether you're in a group interview or one-on-one, -on -one, there's almost always an opportunity we have to ask questions. So we would want to be saying, you know, what do you like about working here? What do you not like? And they're not going to always be completely candid, but the way in which those questions are answered can give you clues to how things are working. 
I'm trying to remember, this is way, way back when, more than 15 years ago, but there was an organization that I was involved in. And when I think about the, in fact, no, it was even more closer to 20 years ago, but the hiring process, there were clues that I missed along the way of a lot of really weird dynamics between peers. And there was a lot of scarcity mindset between peers that I wasn't really able to pick up on because I was only really watching for the interaction I had with the person I would report to. But in so many of our roles, we're really the success we're able to contribute to an organization often has a lot to do with our peers. And so having those kinds of interactions with people that you'd be part of a team on, in my experience, those are golden. And if you don't get those, you may even want to ask for the opportunity to speak with someone who would wind up being your peer. And you can think about like, it's better for them, because then they have more of an opportunity to gauge how well you would fit in the organization, but also for yourself. That's a really, really good thing that I think back about the times when I skipped that or wasn't just a part of the process, and I didn't ask for it. And not that I I don't regret I don't regret any of the places I've ever worked in my life. But I just think I would have been better informed for what I would face at that particular organization. So those are a couple of thoughts I have. Dave, I don't know if you've wanted to give some suggestions as well. I was thinking about last week's episode with Becky D'Souza and talking about how to utilize an executive recruiter. And part of what I think is behind this question is, how do you get more knowledge about what's going on, not only with an individual organization, but also out there in your industry? I love the invitation Becky made to us of taking the call from a recruiter, maybe even reaching out and starting a relationship, even if you aren't in a situation where you're looking for that next role or next position. The great recruiters out there like Becky are wanting to build long-term relationships with people. And if you're willing to occasionally take a call, keep a relationship going, you start to learn more about what's happening in the industry. You start to learn more about what organizations are hiring and what they're looking for and what compensation looks like. And that, in addition to your professional activities of getting involved in membership organizations, associations, taking the time to notice what the movers and shakers in your industry, what kind of meetings they're going to, what kind of conferences they're going to, what they're reading, who they're interacting with. As you build a few of those relationships, I don't think you have to build a lot. A few of them can go a long way because then you start asking people that are outside of your own regular sphere of influence, what are the organizations that are exciting to work for? What are the organizations that are doing really creative things? Where are the opportunities out there? And the more you know that, the more data points you have, I think the more confidence you have going into a interview and like Bonnie said, showing up with questions noticing dynamics, noticing not just what the manager's saying, but what are the peers that you'd be working with saying or not saying when they respond to those questions. The more knowledge you have, and there's so many resources and ways to do that out there these days, if you will do one or two of those as a starting point in the coming months, you'll start to build that perspective that will help you to then, you're never, by the way, none of us are ever going to eliminate the working for a bad manager. And I think almost all of us have had that situation happen. That's the other piece of this is you could do this all perfectly and you show up and you're in a new position working for the perfect manager and the best team in the world. And a week later, that manager moves on somewhere else and you have an entirely new manager and it's an entirely different story. And just to know that that is just, that is the nature of work and careers, right? But the more you know about what's going on in the broader industry and what's happening out there as far as compensation and opportunities, I think the more you insulate yourself 
from getting into a situation that you didn't expect. Our final question is from Craig, and Craig writes, I come from a manufacturing environment, and there are strict requirements to follow in the manufacturing instructions. How do I start to make myself more visible without appearing to be a brown noser and receiving criticism from other coworkers? Craig, the word that came up for me when I read your question is mediocrity, not because of you, but just thinking about your other coworkers. Um, so many people in the broader well, the broader workforce and in industry and in life are very happy with mediocrity and are perfectly good with that. You're not because you're listening to the show and you're asking this question. A quote from a poem that I love from E.E. E. Cummings goes like this, to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you just like everybody else means to fight the greatest battle there is to fight and never stop fighting. You've made a choice already, because you're listening to the show, because you're asking this question, not to be mediocre, to do something that is not only good for your career, but that's going to be helpful to your organization. And so, yeah, there's going to be the naysayers out there always. There's always going to be the people that are going to say, hey, you're just doing this for whatever reason. And my response to that is, so what? So there's people who call you a brown noser or whatever. But don't let those people and that mediocrity define you and your desire to better yourself, to better your organization. And my, my hope for you is you'd solve a problem. So in a place where there are strict instructions and processes and procedures, there are also opportunities to make those processes and procedures better. And almost in every organization, there's a place, there's a whole list of things that people would like to see happen better that will help the organization be more efficient, more effective. Look for those opportunities. There's probably three or four you know of right now. And start the movement forward of making something better. If you can get engagement from others to do that, from your management team, great. Most management teams are thrilled when people come to them with ideas on how they can make something more efficient, especially in a manufacturing environment. That's easy to track. Uh, in most manufacturing environments. But even if there's not that engagement, you start finding a way to make something better. And within the structure and processes you have, how can you to do something that produces results and solves a problem? And then when you do, share that. Share what you've done. Share what has worked. Share where you have not been able to make traction. If you demonstrate that you are the kind of person who is willing to have the courage to make something better and to influence and help the organization, then you'll do wonderful things. And yeah, there will be the people who will be the naysayers, but you are the person who will set the tone for how to make things better. Several related episodes to the questions we responded to today. One of them is episode 328, How to Deal with Opponents and Adversaries with Peter Block. Bonnie mentioned his work earlier and his book, The Empowered Manager. So many lessons in that book. And one of the key lessons is how to handle organizational politics more effectively. If you find yourself dealing with a lot of opponents and adversaries in your organization right now, yes, there is a lot you can do as a leader, 
as an individual and in influencing others to navigate tough politics. Episode 328 is a great framework for that. Check that out. Also helpful to you will be the episode I mentioned earlier, 349, The Path to Start Leading Your Team. If you, like Mark, have stepped in to either form a new team or maybe you're stepping in with an existing team, as in Mark's situation, uh, episode 349 is a great starting point for you. John Pinheiro talks about not only his own journey with that, but also a number of the books and experts we've had on the show over the years that he leveraged in his thinking and strategy about how to put together his team. So check that out if that's of use to you. Also, uh, the last uh, couple of weeks of episodes will relate to some of the things we discussed here today. Episode 405, Develop Leaders Before You Leave with David Marquet. We talked about some of the lessons in today's episode as well. David, the former commander of the USS Santa Fe, and talks about his journey of taking over a a U.S. Navy ship that was not performing well and turning into uh, one of the best performing ships in the Navy. Episode 405 is a great starting point for that conversation. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 406, last week's conversation, how to work with an executive recruiter with Becky D'Souza. A lot of good calls to action for all of us, whether we're seeking a new position or not. One of the points we made in that conversation last week, if you didn't catch it, is that there's a lot of reasons you want to engage with an executive recruiter, and it's not just because you're looking for a new position. Uh, those of us who want to continue to broaden our networks and also potentially to be helpful to many others in our professional networks, that's uh, a great thing to be thinking of and at least spend a little bit of time with. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website and inside the free membership portal. This uh, episode is going to be under the topics of organizational politics, team leadership, career growth, and of course, Bonnie's name is there as well for all the episodes uh, that I've done with her over the years. You can get access to all of that and search the entire library of episodes since 2011 just by activating your free membership. Go over to coachingforleaders.com and you can activate your free membership right there. It'll give you a full access to the entire back catalog all of my book notes, the member cast, my personal library with everything I've ever sent in the Wednesday weekly leadership guides, all those podcast episodes from other folks, articles, books, all of them are databased inside the free membership portal. You can search by topic. It's a great resource if you're looking for an article for your team or a credibility piece for a client or customer. Uh, it's a great starting point for that. So check out Dave's library in the free membership portal. Just set it up at coachingforleaders.com. So much more there too. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Oscar Tromboli to the show. He is going to teach us how to get better at deep listening. It's also the title of his book. Join us next week for a conversation about listening. Have a fabulous week and see you next Monday.